Thank you, Preston, and good to be with you. Um, my, I had a heart attack a few years ago. That's why I'm retired. Well, Preston and I are old friends. Uh, emphasis on the word old. Uh, you probably know the serenity prayer. I don't know if you know the senility prayer. Uh, there's a senility prayer someone put together. It says, God, grant me the senility to forget the people I never liked anyway. Uh, the good fortune to run into the ones I do. And the eyesight to know the difference. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a senility prayer that we're praying. Uh, but if you do remember the serenity prayer, uh, this is relevant for the message today. The serenity prayer is, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. That's for the first line. Let's just stop there in that prayer. But there are certain realities to life today that we cannot change. And we need the peace of God to accept that. We can't change it. Uh, I was going to preach in these sermons on a, uh, a series on, on um, uh, Ephesians, but in light of all that's gone on the last few days, I felt led to take a different topic, and I want to preach on the subject of persecution for the church. My text is in Revelation chapter 2. If you're familiar with Revelation, uh, you can find the outline for the book in the end of chapter 1, verse 19, it says this, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, the th those that are, excuse me, the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are take place after this. So it gives three parts of the book. The first part is the vision of the resurrected Christ that John received. The second part are things that are. And that comprises seven letters to seven churches. The book of Revelation is written in apocalyptic language. This is a language that was popular in the time of the Bible. It, it uses symbols, sometimes even bizarre symbols, to communicate truth. We saw that when reading Revelation earlier in the service about the seven spirits of God. If you notice that, uh, what, it does not mean that God has seven different spirits. Rather, it's referring to the fullness of God's spirit. And that day and that age, there are different beliefs that uh, this God had that spirit or this other God had that spirit, but they were limited in their knowledge and their, and their presence. But God's spirit, seven means complete, and God's spirit has all knowledge and is omnipresent, is everywhere. Well, that's the example of apocalyptic language. And we come to the book of Revelation. We're looking at particularly the letter to the church at Smyrna. And there are many symbolic meanings for this, but... In our current situation, it is, especially in an international church. By the way, I've pastored international churches since 1992. Uh, so I'm sensitive to the reality of a multicultural, multi-ethnic congregation. This has been my uh, spiritual home uh, for almost three decades now. Uh, we need to understand there's a difference between governments and people. Uh, and uh, we're speaking about some of the issues that government's decisions that governments have made, not uh, based on uh, ethnicity. So I'm not going to point a finger at anyone other than simply go back to the enemy, which is the, the devil himself, uh, and to see the, the reality of persecution in today's world. Well, Hebrews 13.3 tells us we ought to have on our hearts, those who face persecution. It says, remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And persecution is a reality in today's world. 
these seven letters to seven churches, I believe, give us a, an understanding of the challenges that churches will face during this time of the church age. Uh, and so we have seven different letters. All of them are relevant. But sometimes the, the letter to the church at Smyrna about persecution is the one we sort of forget. We think, well, that may be happening somewhere, but not in my world. Uh, not where I live. And that's something of the past. Sometimes when I preached on persecution, um, many people after the service said, you know, I had no idea that Christians were being persecuted today. It didn't occur to them. Well, one of the realities of the current Russia and Ukraine conflict is that the Ukraine people are much more religious and much more Christian than the Russian people. Uh, a good two-thirds of Ukrainians identify themselves as Christians, uh, even though they're unspecific about what type of Christian they are, they will say they're Christian. It's only one-third of Russians uh, that would identify themselves as Christians. Uh, so there is a tension there, and we can expect, especially people of free churches, uh, to experience some persecution in the Ukraine in these days. So it's a, it's a timely thing to stop just for a second and remember the persecuted church. Now, if you look at the 50 worst nations in terms of how they treat Christians, the 50 worst nations in the world, uh, the most prejudicial nations against Christianity and against Christians in, in, in particular, uh, there are 245 million believers living in those nations. That's a staggering number, isn't it? 245 million Christians live in the 50 worst nations. Now, what are these nations? I won't read off all, all uh, 50 of them. Let me give you the, the 10 worst. Algeria, Egypt, Eritrea, parts of India, Iran, Iraq, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, parts of Sri Lanka, and Turkey. And someone say, what about China? Well, China is actually number 16 on the list. Um, parts of China does have a, a significant amount of freedom, Christians do, but other parts, they have terrible persecution. I served as pastor of an um, international church in Singapore for 12 years in my ministry. And while I was there, a missionary told me a story. He said he had a businessman who was from Hong Kong. At least he, he was a Hong Konger, as you call him, but he actually had come from another part of China, and he did a lot of work. He was a very successful businessman, so he had a lot of money, and he did a lot of good social work for this part of the China where he came from. He had built schools, he had built hospitals, he had, he had done a lot of charitable work just out of his own pocket. Uh, but he was a Christian also, he wanted to share his faith. Well, he went there one time, and he had a, a goal to have a, a Christian message. So. As a significant uh, giver to the community, one that they had appreciated his gifts, he was able to have an arena he rented, and, and thousands of people came, and he shared his Christian testimony, and it was a great joy for him to do that. And then after he finished sharing his testimony, he asked for people who wanted to receive Christ to come forward. Well, first of all, there were no one was coming forward. Then after a, a few minutes someone stood and came forward. And then another stood and came forward. And before uh, the night was ended, there were 25 people came forward to trust in Christ. And he asked them to come up on the stage with him and declare that they were trusting 
Christ as their Savior. They're choosing to follow Christ. Well, it was a, a, um, a sense of something significant had been accomplished. And the night ended with everybody, well, the Christians rejoicing. The next day, things were different. Of those 25 who stood on the stage with them, if they were a student, they were expelled. If they had a job, they were fired from their job. Whatever they were doing, they were outcast, and they were isolated and cut off. And that's a form of persecution to impoverish Christians. This is one of the oldest forms of persecution, to cut them out of the mainstream of things. Some places like Pakistan, for example, if you're a Christian, you may get a job, you may be very well qualified, but you're very likely to make uh, not even one-third of what a Muslim would make in that same in that same job. So it's a way to persecute Christians. Well, this is going on all over the world. In these 50 worst nations, um, on average, about 4,000 Christians are killed every year. And that's just, that's not including the ones who are, lose jobs, who lose education, who are impoverished because of their faith, or, or who simply face rejection, or who are beaten up, or, or whatever other forms of persecution they may face. Well, in our text this morning, and I realize where time is, is precious, I'm an I'm a experienced pastor, I know how to end, um, so I'll, I'll try to end on time. You quit about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, is that right? Yeah, okay. Okay. But look at our text here. This is the church at Smyrna, the letter to the church at Smyrna, and you follow in your Bibles, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation." Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Each of these seven letters has a certain outline, and we're going to follow the outline. First of all, is how Christ describes himself. Secondly, is how he describes the church. And thirdly, is the promises to the overcomer. So first, how does Christ describe himself to the persecuted church? It's a very short description, but it's very powerful. He says, the words of the first and the last. He asserts his authority in the universe. He said, I am the first. That is, he is the creator of all that exists. And he is the last. He will sum it all up also. And he asserts his, his authority. Everything that exists, exists because he called it into existence. And it, all the streams of history find their fulfillment in Christ. He's not a subnote. He's not merely a, a, something that's on the side and is not eternal. Rather, he is the one in whom all the streams of history are flowing, toward whom all the streams of history are flowing. So he says, I'm the first, and I will be the last. I'll be the last to say the final word of condemnation to those who reject me and also of affirmation to those who have received me. So he asserts his position. And then he also says, I am one who died and came to life. 
And there that phrase of died, it pictures the grace of God. It reminds us that he is the one who loves us more than anyone ever could. He died for the sins of the world. And his death more than satisfied all the requirements of God. And he died to carry away our sins, to pay in full for the debt we owed. But he did not remain dead. Death could not hold him, as the scripture says. He came out of the tomb. Now he lives forevermore. So he died for us, but he also has the power and the authority to truly forgive our sins. Now this is Christ. That is who he is. Now the unbelieving world, especially the persecuting world, sees it very differently. They see it very differently. Uh, they see that Christ has simply invaded their world and the church is a problem. If they could just erase us, just take us off and just put us somewhere else. If they can't, if they can't destroy us, at least they can silent us to put us over here. And we can just not uh, bother them anymore. They don't want to hear any more about God or Christ or responsibility. Now, quite often we hear an unbelieving world say something like, how could God allow this to happen? Um, and uh, it's a uh, very simple description in the Bible of how this fallen world came into existence. God did not create the world as a fallen world. He created it as a beautiful world, but because of human sin, sin entered into the world, and now we have problems. We have problems because God gave people freedom, and freedom always carries with it responsibility. In fact, the very person who says, why can't God take care? Why does God let this happen? That same person who makes an accusation against God, he would be the first to complain if God removed his own personal freedom. See, what the world wants is they want the freedom to do whatever they want to do, but they don't want there to be any consequences. They don't want to be responsible for anything. And that's not the world God created. That world does not exist. That world does not exist. Freedom always carries responsibility. And the reason we have problems is because of sin. Because people have problems. And God says, don't worry, I haven't forgotten my promises. In fact, the Bible says that heaven will be a vindication of God. No one's going to get to heaven and say, wow, is this it? I thought it would be more than this, all that we endured. <laughs> this is a disappointment. No one's going to get to heaven and say that. Whether heaven will more than vindicate God, it will show us his grace and his love and his compassion for us. So those questions that are beyond us and are above our pay scale, we can leave in God's hands. We have to leave them there. But as long as we can remember who God is, we can get through persecution that happens to us. We can get through the embarrassments or the rejections we face. Adoniram Judson was the first American missionary to go to Burma, Myanmar now, but Burma. And he was there during the British and the Burmese War and was in prison for most of two years, almost died during that time. And uh, at one time, one of his jailers, one of his prisoners was ridiculing him and rubbing salt in the wound of persecution and saying, now, how, how bright are your prospects now, Mr. Judson? And Adonai's response was that they are as great as the promises of God. And that was true. Eventually the war ended and 
he began to be more fruitful in ministry. Today, we have one of the biggest populations in Southeast Asia of Christians in Burma, even though it has a lot of political problems right now. Uh, you still see the growth of the church there. But whatever we're experiencing, and maybe it's just a few snide remarks your way where you work or where you go to school or among family members sometimes. Remember whose you are. Who you are and whose you are. Uh, as Christians, we belong to God. And He is our great defender. Now the second description is about the persecuted church. And He says this, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation. No one ever goes through difficulty without God knowing what we go through. He knows our problems. Now, a Christian prays with that confidence. You know, the non-Christians, the pagans, pray thinking two things. First of all, their gods are uninformed, and they need to tell them what's going on. And secondly, their gods are not predisposed to help them, so they have to somehow bribe them into, into uh, helping them. So they have to tell their God, who doesn't know what's going on, this is what's going on, and they have to do something to get their God ready to help them. But Christians pray very differently. Christians pray realizing our God knows all things, and He is predisposed to help us. He wants to bless us. He wants to help us. So we go with confidence in Him. Our praises are not to flatter God, to get Him on our side. Our praises are to remind us who God is, and it's fitting to give praise to God, but not as a form of flattery that we can convince Him, hey, I'm down here now that I've said all these things, will you help me out? Uh, God's bigger than that. God already loves us. He says, you have not because you ask not. Just ask and you'll receive. So Christ begins by saying, I know your tribulation. I know what you're going through. And He mentions your poverty. Your poverty. One of the forms of Christ, uh, persecution has always been to impoverish Christians, to impoverish them, uh, to make them poor, cut them out of the economy some way. Uh, they have to do something in order to, to get a job that a Christian could not, would not, should not do. Then it says next, he says, um, and the slander. Now, by the way, it does say something about the, the, the Jews and Smyrna and the synagogue of Satan. That's not an anti-Jewish statement. Rather, it is a statement about a, a specific synagogue. And according to history, the, the synagogue in Smyrna was actively persecuting Christians. Uh, but don't take that as anything more than that one reference to one synagogue. Um, but slander is another thing that Christians have faced. In the early Christian centuries, uh, Christians were slandered in many ways. In case English is not your first language, uh, slander, uh, you slander someone when you say something, say something about them that's not true. You libel them when you write it. Uh, and this is, this is um, what goes on in the, uh, in, in, in the world, especially towards Christians. It's easier to slander someone than to write it. And so they were saying these things. They were saying these things against them. Also, there's less proof that you actually said that. Well, some of the things that Christians were accused of in the first century were these. Cannibalism. Christians in the New Testament church were accused of cannibalism. Well, why on earth would they accuse Christians of cannibalism? Remember, Christ said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. 
So a misrepresentation, slander. Those people are eating people. That was what the first Christian, first Christians faced. Atheism. They were accused of being atheists because they did not believe in the in polytheism. They did not believe in the gods of the Mediterranean peoples. They believed in one God, and that was viewed as your atheist. So Christians were accused of being atheists. Perverting morals. That was another accusation against Christians because they came up with biblical, well, they didn't come up with them, they, they taught biblical morals. And they were against, they were contrary to the public morals of a pagan world. So they were accused of, of um, perverting the morals of young people. Also, they were accused of public riots, even though they were not the ones who caused the riots. They, in the midst of persecution, the, the persecutors would riot, and they blamed the Christians uh, for the riot. We're familiar with the burning of Rome under Nero, and, uh, and he, he blamed the Christians for that. The Christians burned Rome. He had to blame someone. But that was typical the way they were persecuted. Another, another slanderous thing said against Christians in the first century, and even today it still echoes in this world, is an unpatriotic spirit. An unpatriotic spirit because they would not say Caesar is Lord. And so they were accused of having an unpatriotic spirit. You're not with us. And this is some of the accusation that Christians have faced throughout the, throughout the centuries. And to this day, it is still, these accusations still hang in the air at different places. You're not one of us. You're, you're, you're perverting people's morals. You're, you're an outsider. You're brought in this foreign religion and it's, it's not who we are. One of the challenges being a Christian in many places. Christ says to them, fear not. Fear not. Um, fear is a terrible thing to live with. And it really is a choice. We can simply choose not to be afraid. Now some things we need to respect that there's a danger involved in those things. Uh, but we don't need to live in fear regarding that thing. And the Christian may acknowledge there are dangers out there, but we do not need to live in that fear. We can give those fears to God he says, 10 days you'll experience persecution. And it gives an idea uh, that uh, it has a, uh, it'll be a powerful thing, but it'll be limited. There are some limitations. When we leave these in God's hands, often we endure much more than we ever thought we could. As a pastor, I don't know how many times I've gone to a hospital with someone uh, who says, uh, uh, dealing with a loved one who is diagnosed with cancer. And this has happened quite often. In the early stages of the, of the uh, dealing with this very serious illness, after maybe two or three months of dealing with it, uh, the wife or maybe the husband will say, I can't do this anymore. I hate to see him suffer. I hate to see her suffer. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm out of energy. I'm out of emotion. I cannot do this anymore. I just pray that God would take them now in their suffering. And what they don't realize, I, I realize it because I've been doing this a little bit longer than they have, is that their journey has just begun. They're, they're not even one-tenth of the way through. 
and they're exhausted already. So I can't do this anymore. I say, no, you, you don't know. You're, you're, you're halfway through the first day. It's going to go much longer. It'll be a two or three years before this ends. But God will give you the strength. And this is what we see when we go through a difficult time. Sometimes we think, I can't take it anymore. And then we simply learn where the source of our strength is to be. It is to be in God. So there comes something out of persecution that is, is transforming. Not to say that evil is good, uh, but that even evil God can use to do something profound in our lives. It's difficult to teach and preach that because it, even though we can say it in one situation, in other situations it, it seems to, to stagger the imagination. My wife and I are involved in also a ministry for uh, sexually exploited people. And these are people that are truly traumatized. Uh, and uh, you realize what trauma does to people. Uh, trauma does damage people for, for the rest of their lives. Severe trauma is not something you just get over. Uh, whoever said, that which does not kill me makes me stronger, uh, was not quoting scripture. Uh, there are times that things do damage us, and we don't, we don't get over it. We don't get over We get through it. Uh, but it's very traumatic things, and persecution is one of those things. People are damaged by persecution. But what can grow in persecution is our faith in God and our reliance upon Him. We can learn to give situations and people to God. And that is a powerful thing. That is a powerful thing to say, Lord, I put this in your hands. We see the end of the story. If we go over just a few pages in, in our Bibles, and mine is just, a, just over a, two pages of chapter 7 of Revelation. And it describes another scene in heaven. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches. With a loud voice they were crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And said, Who are these? And the answer is this. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. These are the martyrs who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Notice it does not say they have washed their robes in their own blood. They made them white in their own blood. It doesn't say that. Even a martyr's death doesn't forgive us our sins. The only time our sins are forgiven is in Christ. But coming through that, their understanding of the grace of God in Christ was deepened. And they stand before God rejoicing, rejoicing. It is in the blood of Christ that we are forgiven. The word Smyrna actually is a Greek word for myrrh. Myrrh was an aromatic uh, resin from, from hardened sap of trees that they would crush to produce a perfume. And there's a picture of what happens when we go through difficult times also. Uh, the crushing is not pleasant, but in the crushing there is an aroma that is released. That is the aroma of Christ, the aroma of of God, the Rome of God's peace. 
And as we go through this, something should change within us. Something of the peace and the grace and the love of God. And realize how we are saved. Fully saved. And it's interesting, you look at how the witnesses are given. We, we know of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. But God prepared him for that moment through witnessing the martyrdom of Stephen. And Stephen, rather than cursing his persecutors, blessed them. And that must have shaken Paul in some way. So we don't know what testimony we are given when we are enduring difficulty, enduring rejection for the sake of Christ. We don't know who's looking. We don't know how God will use that. Often we simply ask too little of God. We need to ask great things of God. He's prepared to do great things. For example, the thief on the cross. Remember the thief on the cross next to Christ who believed? He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's a statement of faith, but it, he had very little understanding of what that faith would lead to. He was assuming he would be in judgment. He would go to Sheol, the place of the dead. He'd be in a place of torment. He knew that's what he deserved. He had been a thief his whole life. He had hurt people. We don't know other things he had done, but he said, just remember me. And maybe, maybe something good can happen. Maybe you'll lighten my sentence. Maybe you'll make it less, less terrible for me in that place of dead. But instead, Christ answered him, Today, you will be with me in paradise. And often we ask God for something. This is all we can see. God help me. And God said, I'll do more than that. I'll do much more than that. The prodigal wanted to come home and get a job with his father. He prepared a speech. He was going to say, make me as one of your hired servants. And he practiced it. He practiced it. But when he came to the father, he did not get that line out of his mouth. The father said, this is my son who is dead and is alive again. And that's a picture of the grace of God. It's overpowering. It's greater than we could ever imagine. And when we go through misunderstandings, rejections, uh, the world is time to deepen our understanding of God and what He wants for us. Now, He describes the overcomer in this passage. And the overcomer is the one who believes, the one who put his faith in God and says, I believe, and I will be faithful to you. I will not deny you, I will be faithful to you. But it's also the one who embraces the forgiveness He has received. And shares it with others. This is one of the aspects of being a Christian. It is to forgive those who mistreat us. To forgive. Not merely to receive God's forgiveness. But to forgive those who mistreat us. It's so important to embrace this. Because only as we forgive others can we really stand strong for Christ. And live in the power of Christ. I don't know who in your, in your life you need to forgive. We all have someone. We'll have someone we need to forgive. But as we learn to receive God's forgiveness, we must pass this on to someone else. Remember the story of the unforgiving servant. The story is in the 18th chapter of Matthew. And someone owed 10,000 talents. And talent was supposed to be about 20 years worth of labor. So 10,000 talents, what is that? That's a huge amount. 
people have estimated something like 10 million euros, something like this, something astronomical. And the man owed this to his master. And his master said, there's no way you can pay this. I've given you all the time you're going to get. I'm going to sell you and your family as slaves. And the man begged and pleaded and cried. And, and he touched the master and the master said, okay, I'll forgive this debt. But you can imagine what he said. He was probably begging for more time. God, give me more time. Give me another chance. And oh, the master, give me more time. Give me another chance and I will turn this around. And the master knowing there's no way you're going to turn it around. I'm cutting my losses now and I'm going to cash in on your life and your family. That's all I'm going to get out of this. But instead he forgave him. But it's a picture of what God does for us. Let me ask you, if you know all the sins you've committed, do you know all the sins you've ever committed right now? Could you just list them if you had enough time? I couldn't. I mean, my sins. I sure couldn't list yours. Uh, has it ever happened that some, there's something you did maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years earlier, it comes back to your mind, oh yeah, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. But you didn't think about it at the time. How many more sins would you be able to say, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. But the grace of God covers the sins we cannot even think about. That's how great the grace of God is. It covers that we cannot imagine how great it is. All I know is it covers everything. And that's grace. Even if I can identify it and say it, God knows it and says, don't worry about it. My grace covers you. My grace covers you. That's how great God's grace is. When that unforgiving servant, after he received it, he had another slave that owed him about 20 Dollars, something like that. Paltry amount. And he put him in prison until he could pay, and the master heard about it. Anyway, the response is, I had forgiven this huge amount for you. Could not you have forgiven this? And it's always that way. No matter what someone does, the disparity between all that God has forgiven us is great enough that we could say, God, you can give me the grace to not say that what they have done to me is right, not to say that it was good, that it was justified, but simply say that I am not going to let anger consume me and hatred consume me. I will give this person to God and I will move on with my life in God's grace. That's how we overcome persecution, being faithful, forgiving, and moving forward. In 156 AD, there was a memorable and historic martyrdom in Smyrna. The bishop of Smyrna was Polycarp. Polycarp was an old man in those years. He was 86 years old, according to uh, tradition, what we've been able to read. And Polycarp was actually discipled by the apostle John, that is John the Beloved. John the Beloved lived to a ripe old age, and Polycarp was one of his disciples. He had personally known John, the author of the letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the author of Revelation, also the author of the uh, Gospel of John. Um, and uh, he was in persecution. Christians often hide out and they try to avoid notoriety. But they had arrested enough people. They found out who the bishop was and they got Polycarp and they brought him before the tribunal. 
And they had him there. They had other Christians they had arrested, but they, they had him in a public arena. They staged this trial where people could see what was going on. And the people wanted blood. They already had some Christians they were going to put to death. Now they had the bishop. But since he was an old, old man, uh, they thought, well, let's see if we can reason with him. Maybe we don't have to kill this old man who's about to die anyway. So they, they tried to reason with him. And he wasn't agreeable to their, their aims and their goals. They said to him one time, if you will simply look at the tribunal and point to these Christians and simply say, away with the atheist, that would be enough. If you'll just do that. But instead, he pointed to the crowds and looked up to heaven and said, away with the atheist. <laughs> and then they said, if you will simply swear by the fortunes of Caesar, just to say that, they made it as, as mild as they could, but the meaning would still be that he was putting Caesar above Christ and he could not do that. Here's what he said. Since you are vainly urging that, as you say, I should swear by the fortunes of Caesar and pretend not to know who or what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day and you shall hear them. Well, that was his testimony. They rejected his request and he was burned at the stake that day. But what a man. What a picture. Well, that's what happens when we go through difficulty, go through rejection. And an untried faith is a useless faith. Every one of us will one time be required to declare our allegiances. Are we for Christ or not? Are we for Christ or are we not? Remember, just a simple servant girl could frighten the apostle Peter on the night of Christ's betrayal. But after the Holy Spirit came, Peter was bold in the Spirit. And all of us can depend upon the Spirit to strengthen us. And they say, Lord, I will stand by you. I will stand by you. So wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever rejection you're facing, being a Christian, it may be very, very mild. I pray that you would understand how to turn to God in faith, how to forgive, how to be gracious in those circumstances. I pray also uh, for, uh, for all of us here, and especially in Western Europe, where it's fairly easy to be a Christian. Remember our brothers and sisters in Eastern Europe, or right, especially in Ukraine right now, is liable to be very, very difficult. Very, very difficult to be, be a believer in that situation. But pray for safety. Uh, pray for wisdom. Uh, pray for courage and faith. And pray that we would also just be, be aware, be sensitive to what we can do to help, how we can pray. Join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your grace and your love for us. And Lord, we, we, we often fall into the category of thinking that human life has become, human society has become so civilized, we don't have to worry about these things anymore. But then we see situations like this develop that's in Ukraine, and we're reminded that evil still exists. There still is an evil one. 
Where there are lies, there is a liar, Lord. And we know that there is an evil force behind all the evil in the world. Lord, we thank you also that you are greater than all. That greater is the one who is in us than he that is in the world. And, and more are they who are with us and those who are against us. So Lord, we pray that you would give us faith that you are always going to be with us. Lord, I pray for the believers here in this, in this setting and those who will hear this sermon who are facing persecution right now. Maybe it's family persecution. Maybe it's something with the neighbors. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's a classmate. Or maybe it's just some other situation I can't imagine right now. But whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage uh, to, to stand up underneath it, the faith to believe and trust in you. You protect them from fear. And Lord, you would give them also the, the grace uh, to rejoice in their salvation in you. Give them boldness, Lord, and protect them. And Lord, we pray especially those who are in those lands that, are, uh, that it is very difficult to be a Christian. And Lord, we pray especially for the courage to preach the gospel, for protection. And, and Lord, you'd give them also, especially in Ukraine these days. Protect the believers, Lord, that they may be, be able to carry on with their life and with their witness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.